COVID issue for all women. Oi and indeed oi. Welcome to Sunday Chops. It's Mickey doing the welcoming. Welcome one, welcome all. Are you not welcomed? Are you not welcomed? Is this not why you were here? Yeah, I'm feeling pretty gladiatorial because as regular listeners will know, we've quite rightly got a bee in our bonnet about how medicine fails women. So you can imagine how interested I was when a book called This Won't Hurt, How Medicine Fails Women landed on my desk. Its author is sociologist Dr. Marika Big, who explores the huge gaps in women's health, the sexism inherent in medicine, and the lingering gender bias which means women are mocked, misdiagnosed, and dismissed. For decades, now centuries, women have been told that our pain is normal and our pleasure is not to be expected. As you'd expect from a sociologist, Marika is interested in the role society has to play in the medical landscape, and rightly so, it is huge. And as we're also very painfully aware, society was designed for and by men. There's a hell of a lot of dismantling to be done. And so we are talking history, research, the lie of objectivity, the win-win of sex segregation, Nancy Friday, Gillian Anderson, and hope. Of course, there is always hope. Enjoy! With a screaming pillow close to hand, Hobbs. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by sociologist Dr. Marika Big, whose new book, This Won't Hurt, How Medicine Fails Women, explores how sexism is inherent in medicine, making the idea that medicine is gender neutral, well, codswallop really. Marika, hello. Hi, hi. Now, the subtitle of your book won't come as any surprise to our listeners. How Medicine Fails Women, really? They have listened to us wanging on about the sexism inherent in medicine for ages. But tell us a bit more about This Won't Hurt. What is the aim of the book? So, yeah, as you say, this is a subject that has received some attention in recent years in the sort of popular press. And I'm trying to sort of build on those discussions, really, but I'm also trying to add to them. So I'm trying to move the discussion beyond these questions about representation of women in clinical trials, which is often what we hear about. As much as I think that's a really important dimension of the problem, I'm also trying to show how sexism shapes medicine more insidiously. So how this happens at various levels. So on the level of research and the kinds of questions scientists think to ask to, you know, the way women are treated in clinical practice and how this disempowers women in the medical system. It reads like a passion project. So what made you decide to write it? I guess it's a it's a mixture of anger and hope, really. Yeah. Um, oh, it's all we've got. It's all we've got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So on the on one side, it's sort of, per, you know, I've had personal experiences. I talk about that. I think most women have um, just strange, jarring experiences that I only managed to sort of explain after the fact. I outline some of those in the book, but then also just from my research. So my PhD research was in the sociology of medicine. And I was really drawn to that area of research because it's just, there's so many strange kind of outlandish sort of freaky visions of what a scientifically kind of assisted future could look like. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that I just find creatively really inspiring but also just you know as a woman I find that gives me a lot of hope for what science could bring so I think 
a lot of the book is also trying to show us what, you know, cutting edge science, what a kind of more expansive imagination could do for us in, in the realm of medicine. Yeah, there's a whole chapter on femtech, which is fascinating. Can you tell us mm. what is your sort of favorite, most hopeful bit of tech that you've come across? You know, it's probably not the most sort of superficially sort of like strange one I mean I mentioned the artificial womb which you know always really kind of shocks people because I don't think many of us expect that to be a possibility in the near future and in the book I I show how it is actually it's being developed a prototype is being developed at the moment and should be kind of ready within the next five years or so these are really I guess symbolic inventions that really challenge us to think about the role of childbearing in society. And I think that's a really important discussion to have. But then I also talk about other things like a 3D model of bioengineered tissue of the lining of the womb, so the endometrius. I think that's also a really exciting development because what it's done is not only help explain the underlying causes of endometriosis, which, you know, is another area that's received quite a lot of public attention, but it also um, finally proved to, yeah, finally, <laughs> um, but it also proved to be a really valuable source of stem cells. So it kind of shows how understanding the female reproductive system also opens up new kind of gateways to what we consider to be the most cutting edge areas of medicine, like regenerative medicine, for example. Mm-hmm. So I think those are really interesting areas because they challenge the the boundaries we have between fields and medicine that have shaped around the needs of men, um, male bodies. So I think those are in some ways scientifically the most kind of revolutionary um, discoveries because they can really shake up how we do things. Yes, I also enjoyed your very eloquent eye roll at the fact that the men who have designed the artificial womb have made it look like testicles. But that's a whole a whole other podcast if we're going to talk about all of that as well. <laughs> you kind of touched on it yourself there and did it a little bit yourself there when I asked you what was your favourite. You kind of went, oh, they're not the show-stopping ones. So mm. talk to me about sexy science in inverted mm. commas and how yeah. it's screwing women over and has been screwing us over forever. Yeah, no, sure. So yeah, you're right. This is something, it's sort of a tension because I think a lot of the most important innovations in medicine for women are very straightforward or at least not very high tech innovations or at least not scientifically very high tech, but just reorganizing things, changing kind of bureaucratic systems and how we deliver care. And those aren't very scientifically exciting kind of advances. And I use the term sexy science to talk about, I mean, it's twofold, really, because on the one hand, I talk about the ways in which women's sexuality has kind of displaced women's health in medicine. Mm -hmm. I talk, for example, about Goop, this sort of... um, uh, brand of well-being kind of products sold to women under the guise of you know sexual emancipation or this is really good for your gynecological health but are often really harmful to women's health and are more about kind of reinforcing or molding women around this idea of like a clean virginal woman with a tight 
vagina. Mm-hmm. Um, so Let's this is Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In some ways, I'm referencing this idea because it has had an impact on how science is formed being predominantly male scientists, but also the people allocating funding are predominantly men. And the scientists I spoke to said that there is a sort of aversion or a discomfort with discussions around menstruation, for example, reproductive areas of research gynecology. And that maps onto this sexist idea that women should be sexy So in part, I'm trying to use this idea to show why the funding has gone in a certain direction and not another. But also what has ended up happening is that these sexy areas of research, which are called sexy areas of research, so cutting edge areas like cancer research, have received most of the funding are also where scientists want to work because they're perceived as more scientific, more yeah, more cutting edge, more advanced. It's where you want to make your career, whereas the areas of research that, you know, are exclusive to women, so gynecology, for example, are not perceived to be a scientifically interesting. So that then shapes medicine because it means that new researchers gravitate towards certain fields and not others. That's where the funding goes. That's where the research happens. And it means that women and the issues that matter to their health, not so much this image of, you know, a sexy woman. I mean, issues like prolapse, for example, aren't getting the attention they need. Mm -hmm. I guess maybe it's because they've named all the bits inside of us. So, you know, what left is there to do? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They've colonized our bodies and they can move on. Totally. It really struck me that actually the thing that's not seen as sexy, but is so key to so much of women's health and medicine being better equipped to help women is communication. And that's just Mm. not seen as sexy, but communication, listening to women appears to be the number one thing that would help women. Who'd have thought it? Who'd have thought it, Marika? I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) What a shocking turn of events. (laughs) High tech stuff right there, yeah. (laughs) I think because we have a high cultural tolerance for women's suffering, and I think women are part and parcel of that as well, it's not regarded Mm. as important. And because, as you say throughout This Won't Hurt, we can't separate science from culture. That has Mm. really fed into medicine, right? We are trying to disentangle ourselves from a lot of baggage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. You know, the funny thing is we've pretended to. We've pretended to separate science from culture. And what I'm arguing in the book is that we need to put science back in culture, you know, put it back in the world. Um, Because otherwise what happens is that cultural ideas about gender, so, you know, gender biases, gender stereotypes, end up shaping the assumptions made in medicine and driving research. So I'm arguing for a sociological, anthropological awareness of the importance of culture in science. I mean, lots of ideas about women and how they should be and who they are and how closely they are identified with their bodies have shaped medicine. So the idea of a woman as a, you know, as a baby maker, for example, has really driven research in certain directions and not others and shaped a field of knowledge around questions that matter to, you know, men, not necessarily women. So, yeah, that's what I'm really trying to show in the book, that we we need to put this question of culture and our cultural ideas back into discussions about medicine and research. Now, you said at the top that you were taking the book in a different direction from the conversation that has finally come to light a lot in the last few years, and that is the absence 
of women, of the female sex in various trials and research. But Mm -hmm. (laughs) we have wanged on about that on this podcast a lot because the importance of including sex as a variable in research, it's a win-win, right? It is a win-win. Yeah, completely. Yeah, that's another, you know, key message is that basically the result of having such a kind of myopic narrow science, the result of excluding a whole, you know, half of the population from science means that there's lots of areas that just haven't been understood, haven't been investigated. That's bad science, Mm -hmm. you know, when you preclude certain questions, that means you're not doing your work. So that's the argument I'm trying to make that it benefits us all looking at how hormones relate to, for example, bone formation is relevant to both men and women. For a long time, it was believed that there's the female and the male sex hormone, and they're exclusive to men and to women. But now we understand that estrogen plays a really important role in bone formation for men as well. So, you know, or fertilization, understanding how fertilization actually happens will benefit women, of course, because right now women are subjected to quite rigorous, (laughs) intensive regimes when they decide to try out IVF. But understanding how fertilization works is obviously going to benefit men too who want to, you know, have have children. So I mean it's yeah, across across the board, um, this is a win-win. That particular little nugget of information is so telling the fact that we have been sold forever, for as long as there has been research into reproduction, that the egg is passive like women and the sperm is the one doing all the work brave little sperms look at them go look at them go and that is just horseshit (laughs) absolute horseshit (laughs) completely no and it's so I mean and and it has implications I mean it's just yeah it's amazing to me that these gender roles are projected onto you know the cells that scientists are studying and that it's misled them so turns out that eggs send out chemical signals that select for genetically more compatible sperm, for example. So this idea that the sperm is active and like races towards the egg and that the egg just waits there passively to be saved is just completely wrong. And we need to think carefully about these assumptions and how these these narratives are just written into our bodies. this is of course beyond frustrating and what it means is that we women really need to advocate for ourselves when we're dealing with medicine in any way and of course Mm -hmm. advocate for other women who might not be able to advocate for themselves yeah definitely how do we do that what I'm trying to do here is also put more of this responsibility on scientists and medical professionals, because as important as I think it is, and it's necessary right now for women to advocate for themselves, they shouldn't have to, you know, you shouldn't have (laughs) to walk into a doctor's office and sort of feel like you're going to have to fight to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, So you know, and there is a growing like discussion and dialogue and awareness around women's health. You know, this term medical gaslighting has um, received, I think, a lot more 
kind of attention and support and just having this terminology to name our experience is a huge step because it validates that experience. Mm-hmm. It makes you feel less alone. You know, also I talk a lot about internet culture and a discussion around yeah, sexual emancipation or gynecological health, this kind of stuff. That being that normalizes having these discussions and destigmatizes, but um there's a long way to go, you know, and I think there's still this toxic, you know, this this idea that women need to be sexy above all other things. There's still a lot of this being kind of perpetuated in various places. The idea that women sort of need to suffer is still so much there. This expectation that, yeah, somehow it's it's perhaps tied to also the idea of like a childbearing woman having to pay her dues. Mm. I was speaking to a journalist the other day, um, an Irish journalist who was saying that there are there's still very it's still very much felt by women who go into a labor ward that they sort of need to suffer a bit before they're given pain medication it's sort of considered to be a natural part of childbirth so as long as we kind of continue to carry these ideas about what is natural in a woman's duty i think it's going to be yeah an uphill struggle trying to change these expectations but I think generally just stating the fact that you should expect to get the help that you need. I think that's already (laughs) massive, you know, for women to believe that. Totally. You use the term medical gaslighting and I read the piece in Mm. the Irish Times, which is mostly absolutely excellent. But it referred to the phrase as a contentious phrase, medical gaslighting. And I was Mm. like, are you gaslighting me about medical gaslighting? (laughs) 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 Well, I mean, it's contentious in the sense that I think a lot of medical professionals contest it Mm -hmm. and I think that comes from a place of feeling you know I think it's a defensiveness and it's some I can understand it you know these these people do dedicate their time and their careers their lives to trying to deliver you know care to people and try very hard and a lot of people are just honestly giving it their all so I understand that there's a sort of defensiveness when people start to say it's not good enough and and you're working yourself to the bone but on the other hand the kind of establishment needs to take responsibility um, and that's what it's about and that's also the point I was I tried to make in that interview is just the the term refers to a kind of communicative disenfranchisement Mm. so it's an experience that women have and that is real and that's what we need to validate and acknowledge and take seriously it's not meant to be a you know a critique of individual people you know not trying their best it's meant to point to a problem that we need to address yeah totally you know individual doctors nurses people in the medical profession are caring hard-working want to help people but the fact is the gig is rigged the gig has been rigged for so long and so that takes a long time to to change you talked about women being sexy and that being like the the forefront of male scientists minds when they're they're dealing with stuff that affects women Mm. but the kind of irony in that is that for decades we've been told that our pain is normal in this pursuit but our pleasure is not to be expected so women are to be sexy for men but not sexy for ourselves and you talk about how we haven't, again, we haven't listened to women and stuff. And I, I saw in the news that Gillian Anderson is uh, positioning herself as the next Nancy Friday and currently collecting letters from women about their sexual fantasies to collate mm. into a book. I just wondered what you thought mm. about that. Yeah, you know, I think that kind of, that kind of work is really valuable, just collecting 
actual experiences and just how, yeah, destigmatizing that can be. And I think we'll still be surprised when we collect those accounts. I mean, when you read Nancy Friday today, I think it's still sometimes telling how shocking or surprising some of that is. It just goes to show how dishonest our discussions about this stuff are or how limited they are. And yeah, there's still a long way to go. I think, yeah, I think that's great. I think that's great collecting these real stories. Also, I like the idea of kind of collecting stories Yeah, I mean, again, internet culture, it's interesting, just there's a lot of kind of performance around Mm. this stuff. And I think stories are more intimate, you know, written stories that you kind of also can write in the privacy of your own, you know, room or whatever. It's just, I think that's a really important thing to be doing. Me too. I mean, we're off topic now a little bit, but one of the ones that really mm. I, I will probably never forget from my time of reading Nancy Friday was a woman who was with Cat Stevens on a beach and then uh, she woke up and he turned into a seashell. And I was like, do you know what? There are so many different things that float our boats because we're, all, we're <laughs> Amazing, not a, a homogenous yeah. mass. There were also <laughs> like three or four about robots. And I'd be interested oh, wow. to see how that has changed with like the development of tech and AI and stuff. So, yeah. I think it's very exciting. Yeah. I agree with everything you just said, but, but those stories are likely to be less performative, I think. I mean, mm. there'll be some in there that are quite performative. And again, whatever floats your boat. Yeah, completely. Something that struck me while I was reading This Won't Hurt is that your argument throughout the book, and it is a very, very solid one, I have no beef with your argument at all, mm-hmm. is that we cannot separate science from society. We cannot separate mm-hmm. scientists from the conscious or subconscious prejudices, ideas, mm-hmm. narratives. But I think it is true of human nature that we look for answers to back up our ideas, our thoughts, our, our beliefs even. So mm-hmm. how do you work out which science to trust for your purposes, for the science that you are advocating for in This Won't Hurt? You've got to look at, you know, individual studies and how they're conducted, of course. But it's not that I'm saying distrust science. I don't distrust science. I just don't think science is separate from above or impervious to the kind of normal human fallacies and limitations that everyone else is that's all I'm saying so I think that you know there's this need to be to project a kind of objectivity in science and I think that's detrimental to the way that studies are conducted and the way that medicine presents itself I'm just saying you know we need to look at these things we need to look at who we are as people, <laughs> our identities, our relationship to the thing that we're studying or to the people we're treating. So I think anyone who's doing a bit more of that are more likely to trust what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. And this is a big question. You've written a whole book about it. What do you believe would help change the status quo and make medicine better for women and other non-male bodies? Yeah, I mean, I think a mixture of really straightforward things. So as I said, organizing things differently, a focus on access and prevention and provision as well. So I talk about this life course approach. So the fact that there are key points in a woman's life where we know 
example, if we check in, we could prevent further health complications. So, for example, after pregnancy in a postnatal check is a really good time because pregnancy can unmask a lot of biological kind of vulnerabilities. So it might be an indicator that you'll have a heart attack later in life or heart disease later in life. These moments that are very predictable and that we can take advantage of. But then also, I think on the other end, just the wackiest, weirdest things are really important. They kind of defamiliarize what we think we know. They disorientate us and they often lead to interdisciplinary kind of collaboration. And I think that's really important. Like this endometrium uh, biotech model example, it's just trying to reshape the fields of medicine to get them to work together and to group around problems that matter to female bodies. So I think, yeah, telling different stories, strange inventions, um, anything to kind of spark our imaginations and to challenge science to be more creative in how it responds to our problems. Exactly. All of that and more women at every stage, please. Yes, more women in the room whenever we can. (laughs) Definitely, yeah. This Won't Hurt, How Medicine Fails Women is out now and available from all good bookshops. Marika, where can people find out more about what you're up to, please? Well, they can go to, I have a website, just Google my name. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to spell it then. M-A-R-I-E-K-E-B-I-G-G. Marika, thank you so much for chatting with me. Yeah, thank you. It's been great talking. Yeah. Standard issue for all women.